listening to a Southside Baptist Church podcast with our pastor, Dr. Jeff Parker. For more audio content, please refer to our website, ssbaptistchurch.com. Well, amen. If you have your Bibles, take them. Daniel chapter 1. I started, I'm starting a series today called Learning to Live in the Dark Times. Learning to Live in the Dark Times. And the title of the message today is When the Little Things Do and Don't Matter. Okay? And I want you to look at Daniel chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. In the third year, the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia, and he put in the treasure house of his God. Now I want everybody to look this way. In your life and in my life, there are going to be times in our life that we go through what I call the dark nights of the soul. The dark night of the soul means that there are times in our life when in this process, when Christ is conforming us into the image of Himself, when we are being conformed into the image of the Lord, the word hagiosmos, it's a word that has to do with holy. As God is making us holy, sometimes we go through what I call dark nights of the soul. In other words, those deep, dark moments, it may come in your health, it may come in your marriage, it may come as a parent, it may come in your finances, it may come in your employment. Somewhere, sometime in your life and in my life, we're going to experience what I call dark nights of the soul. When you feel like you're in a valley so deep and things are so bad, you just simply don't know how you're going to possibly get out of them. You can't even see how God could possibly work out this situation. And that's the people that I'm speaking to today because that's what we find here. We find in that life of the nation of Israel, they are in a dark night of the soul. Things are bad. They could not, as far as they were concerned, get much worse. But I want you to understand this, that sometimes the darkest part of the night means that the dawn is on the way. And I want you to hear me today. There are great men and women. There are men and women like D.L. Moody, Billy Graham, Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon became so filled with gloom and depression that he locked himself away and would not come out. D.L. Moody found a time in his life when he went into an upstairs apartment and he fell prostrate on the, on, the, on the floor and he began to weep and to cry out before God. Billy Graham on his way to Southern California for one of the biggest crusades in the history of America stopped on a deserted desert road, stood there in the desert, held his Bible up toward the heaven and began to cry out to God in a, in a, in a dark night of the soul. And I want you to hear me. In your life and in my life, those moments are going to come. And this is where we find Daniel. Look where we read on in verse 3. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and nobility. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, qualified to serve in the king's palace. Steve just leaned over at Malena and said, sounds like me, doesn't it? He was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. 
The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter into the king's service. Among these were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. The chief official gave them new names to Daniel, Belshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But I want you to look at verse 8. I want you to underline it. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and the wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we just come to You, and Lord, we love You and we praise You. And Lord, as difficult sometimes as this spiritual journey is, and as dark as some of those nights may be in the soul, those moments when we are like Jacob at the Jabbok River, we're all alone standing and wrestling with God over an area of our life that we keep trying to cling and to hold on to. As that song says, you won't relent until you have it all. My heart is yours. And God, may that be the heart cry of every person in this room. And dear Lord, may you speak today in such a very, very clear way that our lives will never be the same. Dear Lord, may you use this messenger. Forgive me where I fail you, where I let you down. Fill me with your Holy Spirit, dear Lord. Blot me out. May people hear from you today. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. I was reading a quote by Penn State coach Joe Paterno. Joe Paterno is probably one of the winningest coaches in college football. Just an unbelievable individual. Uh, These monitors are a little loud. I'm hearing myself, or that may be in my head. I'm ringing in my head. It may be because I'm sick. (laughs) I don't know. But anyway, Joe Paterno was one of the great winning coaches, and he was also a coach that was known for learning, or is known for learning. A former player said about Joe Paterno, said this, he said, other schools tried to recruit me with promises that I would definitely play. But Joe Paterno, Coach Paterno promised that I would be a better person. I want you to understand something. That's God's promise to you and I. He has promised you and I that we will be conformed into the image of Christ. In other words, as His Holy Spirit is allowed to work in your life and in my life, we're going over the years, over the weeks, over the months, over the years, we're going to, we're going to, listen, we're going to be better people. We're going to be better people. In fact, you can just automatically know this, that if you can look at your life a year ago and look at it today, and you look and see some progress being made, you are spiritual, you're more godly, you're walking with Christ, there's a level of holiness that wasn't a year ago, then you can be sure of this, God is in the process of conforming you into His image. And so I agree with this player. And this was God's promise to the nation of Israel. But they are in a dark night of the soul. These are difficult times. The background of the book of Daniel is what we call the Babylonian captivity. In other words, God has tolerated, God has tolerated Israel for a long time. God has put up with a lot out of Israel. And now there comes that point to where God says, Listen, I'm just going to give you over to your enemy. 
And the enemy was the Babylonians. And the Babylonians, they poured into the nation of Israel and they soon took it over and then they began to pick up all of these young men and women who had great potential, who had great promise. They picked them up and they carried them back to Babylon. Because that's the way King Nebuchadnezzar worked. It's interesting here that Alexander McLaren said about Daniel, he said Daniel's life spanned the entire period of the exile. And listen to this. He said, and it burned like a star of hope for the exiles. You see, you and I are the light of the world. Jesus said you are the light. He calls us to be the light in any place we are, where people are experiencing the dark night of the soul, we are coming in there. We are light. And so you and I are light. I told Ledge this week, he and I were sitting there drinking coffee and talking. I said, Ledge, I want you to understand how your dad feels. I see myself as a warrior. I am a warrior in a spiritual battle. And what I wield in my hand is the sword of God's Word. And I am illuminated with the light of Jesus Christ, the Shekinah glory. And I am in a dark world. And in that dark world, I'm like a candle. I'm like a light. And I'm wielding God's Word. And the enemy, our enemy, cannot stand it. And my friend, that's not only true of this pastor. That's true of every single born-again believer in this room. You are a warrior who is in a battle. And as I said last week when we talked about sexual promiscuity, I said culturally, the deck... Now, everyone want to stay with me. Culturally, the deck is stacked against any man, any woman who seeks to be holy. If you are serious about being holy and being a man or a woman of God, then culturally today, the culture has declared war on you. It is more difficult today to be holy than it has ever been in the nation uh, since the creation of this country. And so it was for Daniel. Daniel was in a pagan country. He was in a pagan land called Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar would go in and Nebuchadnezzar would, as he would conquer a land, he'd take the best and the brightest and listen to me. He, he, He would take the best and the brightest and he would pick them up. He would bring them back to Babylon and then he would begin to indoctrinate them. You know, I was talking uh, one day to a person who was from the homosexual lifestyle. In the course of the conversation of talking to this individual, I asked them what they wanted. I said, what do you want out of the church? This was the answer. She said, I don't seek your acceptance. I want to indoctrinate you. She says, I want you to allow me to expose your children and your grandchildren to the alternate lifestyle of homosexuality. I looked at her and I said, my authority won't allow me to do that. Now I want you to hear me here. I have never... I have never been rude. I've never been unloving. I've always sought to be Christ-like. But I cannot compromise a clear teaching of the Word of God. But I can still be light. I I can be salt. I can be yeast. 
in that person's life. Daniel understood this. He understood that what was was going to happen in his life was that the Babylonians now, once he is in Babylon, would seek to indoctrinate him. Young people, stay with me here. You're living in a world today, you're living in a culture today, when there is a cultural indoctrination going on. In other words, the world is serious about indoctrinating you into its standards, its ideas, its value system. And it's going to take a great deal in your life and in my life, and especially if you're a young person today, it's going to take a lot to stand against that. You need to recognize it. You need to repent of it if you need to. And then you need to come under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Now what does that mean? That means that I just stand here and I say, God, I'm in, I'm in enemy territory here. I'm in a culture that is moving farther and farther away from the Word of God. I am a warrior in the middle of a spiritual battle and it is critical that I be filled with your Holy Spirit under the leadership of your Holy Spirit because I can't make it myself. Now, what did Daniel learn? I want you to write this down. He learned first of all, or he knew this. I don't think he had to learn it. I think he already knew it. But I think there may be some in this room that need to remember this. First of all, compromises will lead to conformity. You see, what Nebuchadnezzar would do is he would take the best and the brightest, those that were gifted, those with talents, those with abilities, and he would pick them up and he would take them back to Babylon and he would begin to indoctrinate them. In other words, change them. Donald Gray Barnhouse said this. He said, I feel sorry for young men and women who are good-looking who have a head on their shoulders. I mean, they're gifted, they're talented, they're good-looking. He said they already have two strikes against them. So first of all, compromises will lead to conformity. Nebuchadnezzar understood this. He was a brilliant man. He knew how to conquer a nation. He knew that in order to conquer any nation, he would take the best and the brightest and turn them. He would put them in a strange environment, away from their home, away from their family, away from, he would break down those, uh, those, he would undermine those chains of authority in that person's life. He would remove them from their support system, and then he would begin to change them, indoctrinate them, put new doctrine, new principles, new truths into their life. Every politician, every movie star, every athlete, many of them have succumbed to this. I was talking to an individual talking about Tim Tebow. Will he go in the first round draft? Will he be the second round? Will he go at all? My friend, I was down at the Sugar Bowl, he set the BCS record. I challenge you to go online and look at all the records, he said. It's unbelievable. At high school and college level, all the way up. And yet the NFL is asking the question, is he good enough? I looked at somebody the other day, I said, this has nothing to do with the NFL, has nothing to do with this talent, this has everything to do with the kingdom of darkness. Somebody made this statement this past week, came in and said, well, you heard they've now ruled against you putting the scripture blacked out under your eyes. The reason being because we finally had an athlete that took such a strong stand against the enemy of darkness that he's lifted his old ugly head and exposed himself in the athletic community. We need a few more like that. 
You see, compromise will lead to conformity. How would it happen? Nebuchadnezzar knew that Daniel would have to compromise the little things. Look at verse 7. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, he gave the name Belshazzar. Have you ever noticed that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that they got those Babylonian names? You ever notice that Daniel doesn't even have a Babylonian name? We refer to him as Daniel. You know, that's a powerful thing. And I'm sure that when they sat Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I'm sure when they sat these young men down, you know what they told them? They said, listen now, you've got a great opportunity here. You've got talent. You've got ability. You are a leader. Now I want to tell you what you'll do. If you'll work with us here, if you'll allow us to do what we need to do, then we'll give you a name of recognition. We'll give you a name of popularity. You will be liked and respected. My friend, write those two words down, liked and respected. Parents, you better teach your children the difference between being liked and respected. Some people are respected, they're just not liked. If I have my choice, I'd rather have, I would rather have respect than admiration. So here we have Daniel. Now, I want you to take your Bible because I want you to see this. Go over to Luke real quickly. Because I think when they sat these young... Luke chapter 4, I think when they sat these young men down, they told them, they said, now listen, if you will work with us, if you'll go along with us a little bit, if you'll give in just a little bit, if you'll kind of just give up some of these old fuddy-duddy ideas of the past, and you'll just be a little bit more modern thinking, then, then hear me, you're going to go somewhere in the Babylonian Empire. But look at Luke chapter 4, verse 5, 6, and 7. Young people see this. The devil led him up to a high place. Led who? Jesus. Forty days in the wilderness. The devil led him up to a high place and showed Jesus in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all, watch this, underline it young people, I will give you all their authority and splendor. And this is something that a lot of people don't understand. For it has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone that I want to. So if you will worship me, all of this will be yours. You see, that's what the enemy does. What the enemy will do is the enemy offers, listen, the enemy will offer you a cheap thrill. The enemy will give you a little bit of admiration, a little popularity. Popularity may come at forfeiting your principles. You see, compromise will always lead to conformity. Let me give you an example. This is a, this is a newspaper article of several years ago. Because this happens a lot in Hollywood. Mel Gibson is not only one of the brightest entertainers in Hollywood. I'm reading it. He also defies the expectations of being a star. Now listen to this closely. He admits to having a strong religious faith. He spurns the typical perks of being a celebrity by driving his own car to Hollywood functions. On filming locations... Mel Gibson stands in line with the rest of the crew. He eats out of the catering truck. Now listen to this. This is pre 
the passion of Christ. Okay, so stay with me. This is pre his production of the passion of Christ. Nothing is more important to Mel Gibson than his family. And nothing proves that more than his commitment to his marriage. He says, I have ruled out the possibility of divorce. I've just ruled it out. I am not going to do it. And he says the days of his messing time with his children are over. He and his wife Robin have six children ranging in ages from 8 to 17. He will no longer commit to films that require any long-term absence, absence from his family. Future projects will be largely determined by his children's summer vacations. He recently stated in a magazine interview, when you raise kids, you just want to be around. Now let me ask you something. What do you think happened to him? Because today he's divorced. And his family is shattered and broken and in a thousand different pieces. I can tell you what happened to him. He compromised in those little areas. You see, that's the enemy. And that's what Nebuchadnezzar wanted to do. He wanted to take these young men, denationalize them, strip them of their religious convictions and beliefs, and beliefs, strip them of their relationships, pull them away from those relationships, and make them a tool of the government. And so someone sat Daniel down and said, Daniel, you need to just accept this new name, Belshazzar. Daniel said, I can't. My name, my name is Daniel. And the word Daniel means God is my judge. Wow. You see, Daniel was saying, I can't, I can't compromise my final authority. One man told his son that was getting ready to go to college, a very famous individual. I can't even remember who it was, but it was a, it was a story I read years ago. And, and this old man walked his son out to a vehicle, and he looked at his son before he left for college, and he said, Son, remember two things. Remember who you are and whose you are. In other words, remember your name. It'll take a lifetime to build it and three minutes to destroy it. And remember whose you are. You're the son of so-and-so-and-so-and-so, and and you take pride in that. My friend, it takes a lifetime to build a name, but a few compromises and you can destroy it. Look at verse 8 in Daniel chapter 1. I love this, but Daniel resolved. I love that old hymn, resolved not to linger by the world's delights. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself. Wow. You may say, man, he was, a, he was a vegetarian. No, it had nothing to do with his diet. He was just a healthy, he was a health nut. He just wanted a kosher diet. No, the meat was ceremonially blessed by Babylonian gods. And Daniel began to see that, and Daniel said, uh, you know, I can't, I can't compromise here. I can't eat this meat because this meat is being sacrificed to, to Babylonian pagan gods, and I just can't be a part of that. So the answer to that is no. I'm sure somebody looked at him and said, my goodness, Daniel, it's just a little thing. Why don't you give in? Just give in a little bit. Just compromise some. Hear me. Faith should regulate even the smallest details and decisions of your life and my life. The whole idea of bringing our lives under the Lordship of Christ is we put every decision, 
every detail under the auspices, under the authority of God's Word and His Holy Spirit. I've been watching the Olympics. I've been watching the Flying Tomato. Anybody know who Flying Tomato is? He's a snowboarder, red-headed snowboarder. Now, the reason I've been watching him is because he, uh, he reminds me, I hate to say it, of my niece. One of my oldest niece. And I hope she on the website will take that as a compliment. He is kind of cute. No, I'm teasing. But anyway, uh, the Flying Tomato is a young man by the name of Sean. Is it Sean Williams? Sean White? Sean White. Okay, that was close. It was W. I got a W anyway. But they've been interviewing all these different athletes from the Olympics. And as they interview them, you keep hearing some things over and over again. They talk about their regiment. They talk about their training. They talk about their diet. They talk about how disciplined their lives are. And I thought to myself, as I, as I listened, I thought, that's a believer. That's a Christian. That's what we need. We need that kind of disciplined life. So, first of all, compromises will lead to conformity. When you and I begin to compromise, we're going to conform. What does the Bible say? Paul said, be not conformed to this what? To this world. But be ye what? Transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's metanoia. That's repentance. So that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The reason some of us are not sure about God's will is because we've never reached that point that we have said no to the world and we've said yes to Christ. And so here that conformity comes. Secondly, and I'll move real quickly. The power of the testimony with tact. Here's a testimony with tact. Look at verse 9. But Dan, uh, uh, in verse 9, now God had caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, um, I'm reading too fast, I'm trying to hurry now, let me forget it, y'all can wait. Now God had caused, verse 9, the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my Lord the King, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The King would then have my head because of you. Now look at verse 11. Daniel then said to the guard, whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for ten days. Hear me, everyone look this way. There is a power when you have a testimony that has some tact. I'm talking about tact. I had a man sitting across from me a while back. We were eating a meal together. He began to tell me about an argument that he had gotten in. He was a strong, godly Christian man, but he had gotten pulled into this argument and he, had, and, and he had gotten real frustrated. And he asked me this question. He said, uh, he said uh, what do you think? I told him, I said, I believe that you wasted your spiritual voice. I believe you forfeited a spiritual principle for an opinion. God has not called you and I to have an opinion about everything. Some of us destroy our testimony because we lack tact, we lack discretion. We're like a bull in a china cabinet. We're going around telling everybody, well, I just speak my mind. When people say, I want to speak my mind, I say, well, that ought not take too long. You see, there's testimony intact in verses 9, verse 12, 13, and 14. He had earned the right to be heard. 
In verse, in verse 11, I mean, in verse 12, he says, Please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat, water to drink. This man could lose his head for compromising with Daniel here. Daniel said, Listen, you just test my faith. He had, run, he had won the respect. Everyone stay with me. He had won the respect of a pagan government. Alexander McLaren said this. He said, Some seek, some seem to think heroism is shown in rudeness, a negative denouncing spirit, forfeiting relationships for the non-essentials. This is what Paul called empty arguments. Paul said, listen, some of us, we don't need to get pulled into some of these non-essential, amount-to-nothing arguments. We need to protect our testimony. We don't need an opinion about everything. And so here in verse 9, he goes to the chief official. The chief official in verse 9 says, look, I can't do that. In verse 11, he goes to the guard. Would this be sacrifice? Yes. He was going to turn his back on the meat. He was going to turn his back on the wine. He was going to turn his back on the delicacies of the king's palace. And instead, he was going to have a simple diet. Young people, let me say it again. Simple satisfies. Young married couples, simple satisfies. Learning to live a simple life is a great blessing. Listen to this quote. Young people, if you will learn to live with little and discipline your wants... You will be happier and freer and you'll have more time for the more important things, the things of God. God will, listen, when you and I surrender some of those things and we are sacrificially living for God, God will make what we surrender nothing. It's nothing to us. Paul said, all that's done to me. People who live simple lives are content, they're happier. God loves to fill what we empty. we don't give up our stuff, maybe God doesn't fill us up like He wants to. Some of you, some of you in this room can't help at all in that building back there because the enemy has you in bondage financially to the degree that if God were to reveal His will for your life, you in no way could help whatsoever. If God were to put on your heart a, a child getting off that van who doesn't have a coat week after week after week, and you saw that child with a coat, you're unable to meet that need, you're unable to follow God's will because you're living beyond your means. And that is wrong. Will God give you everything you need? Yes, but He won't give you everything that you want. The last thing, and we'll close, the way of wisdom. Look at verses 17 through 20. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature, well, look at, look at back at verse 15. At the end of the ten days, they looked healthier, better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. Listen, when you and I will refuse to compromise those little things that matter, when we will stand boldly for our faith, God will bless that. God bless these men. These guys ended up being at the top of their class. Look at verse 17. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them in, the chief official presented them to King Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man in the world. 
The king talked with them and he found none equal to Daniel, Hadaniah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In verse 20, in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times wiser and better than the magicians and the enchanters in the whole kingdom. Now stay with me here because I want you to hear this. Listen to this quote. If Daniel could not swallow their meat... How could he swallow their teachings? The truth of the matter is, this writer went on to say, why did not Daniel resent the teaching? Instead, the Bible says that he excelled in it. Now stay with me here. Daniel and these others were not threatened by the academic community. These people were studying incantations, divination, mythology, magic. They were studying all these things. Listen, the Bible says that Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego excelled in the pagans' religion. To the degree that Nebuchadnezzar said, there's no no young men like these men. Hear me, young person who's in education right now. It doesn't matter what the world throws at you. You need to be like the Apostle Paul. I know whom I have believed in. I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. I have never, nor am I now, threatened by the academic community. I sat in Africa one time with a very, very brilliant man. As far as I knew, this man was not on his way to heaven. As we sat and dialogued, the article on Newsweek and Time was this. It was about the radiation ripples that they had discovered in the universe. And so I asked this brilliant man, I said, explain to me what that means. He, he began to go to the Big Bang Theory. He said, well, let me, let me explain it this way. He said, at one time, the density of our entire universe was contained in a dot the size of a period at the end of a sentence. He said at at a certain point it was such density that it exploded and that dot that was the size of a period exploded out into and began to expand outward forming the galaxies, forming stars, billions and trillions of stars, stars that far outnumber the the grains of sand on the seas, shores of all around the world. It exploded into solar systems. It exploded into planets like this earth. And with meticulous order. And there was life. And the reason we know this is because we can look now and we can see those ripples of radiation. And he said what that says to the scientific community is if you bring those concentric ripples of radiation back in to a single point, you can tell when it all started and where it started. And this brilliant man, he was really proud of himself. He said, it's kind of like you go to a pond and you look out of that pond and you see concentric circles, ripples, waves. He says, you could actually take those ripples, those waves and press them and bring them back in and determine where the disturbance in the water took place and what disturbed it. And he looked at me and he said, it's kind of like throwing a rock in a pond. 
And he sat back and he was proud. And I said, but who threw the rock? I said, you and I know the laws of energy. You and I know that you don't go from, you don't go from disorder to order. We know that. I said uh, to this brilliant man, I said, who threw the rock? That, that upset him. The next Sunday, that man was in church. This past year, that man died. But I know this, that man is with Jesus Christ today. Michael Behe is the writer of a book called Darwin's Black Box. Michael Behe, a man with five children, he's an old scrubby, scrubby looking guy, you know, old hair standing up everywhere. He goes to Cambridge, he goes to Harvard, he goes to the institutions of the world, and he walks up to the platform, he gets behind all of these institutions, and he sets a mouse trap up there, and he takes that mouse trap and disproves the theory of evolution by talking about the irreducible complexity of nature. He calls it Darwin's black box. Hear me, young people. Don't be threatened by the academic community. Don't be threatened by education. You learn all you can because God is going to hone your skills in order that you can defend the faith. And people will come to Christ because of it. This was mission impossible. Listen, Daniel survived not only Nebuchadnezzar, he survived the Babylonians. And I want to say to you, I don't know what the future of this nation is, but I guarantee this much, there may be young people in this room, you may survive this nation. And you can only do it by putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And God loves you. Everything, everything that you've ever done, what we sung a moment ago, and I'm going to ask Jeffrey if he would to come on. What we sang a moment ago is about the love of God. God loves you. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And he loves you. There's a story in Africa of a chief, and you've heard me tell this before, but there's a story of an African chief. In his little village there, they begin to have a problem with thieves or a thief. A thief was just absolutely destroying the community of his little of his tribe. I mean, things were coming up messing. Uh, you know, they were having all kinds of problems. And, and, and so finally, the chief one day called all the people together and he called his elders and he called his officials together and he said, I tell you what we're going to do. We're going to put the fear of God in these people. We're going to tell them this. When we find that thief, we're going to strip that thief and we're going to take a whip and we're going to beat them senseless as a lesson to the rest of this tribe. Stay with me. Cut these lights. The chief, a few days later, was interrupted by one of his elders. And then another one, and then another one. These elders of this tribe came in and they said, Sir, they said, Chief, we have a, we've caught the thief. And he stood up, he said, Good, good. And one of the elders said, No, it's not good. He said, what do you mean it's not good? He said, sir, the thief is your mom, your mother. 
The thief says, you're kidding. No, no, we're not. The thief is your mother. And so the chief told all the elders to leave. All the elders left and the chief, chief the rest of the day just locked himself away from the, from the rest of the tribe. He didn't have correspond with anybody. He was locked away there thinking and mulling over and realizing that he was in a precarious situation. And finally the chief said, tomorrow, bring my mother to, the, to that post in the middle of the village. Tell that man to prepare, get everything ready. The sentence must be carried through. So the next morning, everybody was up early. The whole tribe, all of them had come together. They were gathered around that post. Then at a certain point, a man looked at the chief as if, you're, you're, you're kidding, you, you really don't want us to do it. He said, he said, do it. They took her robe and they stripped it away from her back. And then they tied her to that post. And there his, there his mother was with her back now exposed, stripped and hanging onto that post. That, 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 uh, that man with that whip came and as he, as he began to, to contemplate what he was about to do, he looked at the chief one more time and the chief nodded his head. So he prepared to take the first, the first whip. When all of a sudden the chief did his hand up, the chief walked over and he pulled his royal robes off and he had his exposed back and then he walked over to his mother and he wrapped his arms around his mom. And now the back of that chief was protecting his mother. And then he gave the, he gave the sign. He gave him the order. He said, now commence the beating. And that mother, as, that son, as her son's body was wrapped around her, she could feel the thrust and the, the ripping of his flesh and the pulling away and feeling the groans and the, and the wrestling and just the sobs of, of weeping as that son was taking the weight of her punch. And then finally in desperate, finally, he collapses. She falls by his side and begins to weep. My friend, every single person in this room who calls themselves a Christian has had, has had Jesus Christ step out of heaven. He put on the robes of man. As the Africans say, God put on the flesh of man. He took those royal robes off. He put on the common servant's robes. He walked up to you and I. He wrapped His body around Calvary, around every single born-again believer from, from 2,000 years ago right now to this moment. He wrapped His body around us, His righteous body. He wrapped it around us, you and I, the church, the ecclesia, the called out ones. He took our punishment so you and I could go free. Because He loves you. And He loves me. Let's stand in honor of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Let's give Him the glory today. Let's give Him the glory that is due His name. Let's give Him a round of applause today that gives Him the glory. You alone are worthy to be praised and honored. And one day the Bible says, in an hour that you think not, so shall the Son of Man come in all of His glory. He loves you. He loves you. He loves you. And He's already paid your penalty. 
God is speaking to you today. There's a decision to give your life to Christ. And you say, I need to do that today. You come. We'll counsel you. We will help you to understand what it means to be a Christian. Whatever that decision is, you come. As they lead us, you come. I'm going to ask the ledge to come here and stand with me.